0: As I wrote in our church-wide email earlier this week, a recent Pew Research poll stated that more than half of Democrats, 55%, say that the Republican Party makes them afraid. Well, about 50% of Republicans say the same about the Democratic Party. Friends, before Tuesday night, people were afraid. Today, people are afraid. Was Roosevelt right when he said that the only thing we need to fear is fear itself? I think I understand the sentiment he was attempting to convey, but I wonder as we turn to this morning's text what the author of Hebrew has to tell us concerning the role of fear. I want to read the surrounding context to the verse that we'll be looking at. I'll I'll start actually in chapter 3, verse 1, and I want to read all the way through to uh, just about the end of chapter 4, maybe chapter 4, verse 11. And as I do so, as I read, consider what purpose fear has in the life of God's people. So, Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed. To reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. But we who have believed enter that rest as he had said, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in that passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let me reread for us chapter four, verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this perfect and inspired and living and active word that you have given us. It is sharper than any two edged sword. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would, by your Spirit, use it as a scalpel to open up our hearts and to expose to us the unbelief that lies there within. And Father, I pray that you would, by your word and by your grace and spirit, cause us to be a people who live in a right and godly fear of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three points I want to consider in this passage. The first is just the overall context that we've just read out loud. The second point is the the very present promise of rest to us. And third, the call to fear. So, the first thing we need to notice in verse 1 is that Well, it's that lovely word, therefore. You all know, right, that word is a conjunction. And therefore, as a conjunction, it is, well, what's it doing? It's it's connecting two big thoughts. There's this argument, and then the therefore to this argument. Remember the song, Conjunction Junction? What's your function? Yeah, connecting thoughts and words and phrases. The therefore in verse 1 is, well, it's connecting the argument of chapter 3 with the other big argument in chapter 4. What was the argument that the author made in in chapter 3? Well, basically, it's this. Jesus is the better Moses. Just as Moses was a messenger and an apostle of God to the Jews being rescued out of Egypt, well, so Jesus is the better apostle and high priest of our confession. We as believers are now, chapter 3, verse 1, to consider Jesus. We are to, as chapter 3, verse 7 says, hear and listen to his voice. We are, as Christians in chapter 3, verse 13, to exhort one another in Jesus, to not fall into unbelief. And the author has his argument to underscore all of this. Well, he uses the book of Numbers You guys remember the book of Numbers, right? We looked at it last week. The author is saying, look at that generation of Israelites that we looked at last week in the book of Numbers. They failed to enter into God's rest because of their own unbelief. You see, they they didn't consider, they didn't listen, they didn't exhort one another. Their hearts were hardened because they refused to receive God's promises, which were given to them through Moses. They, they didn't respond in faith, and instead, out of disbelief or, or unbelief, they disobeyed all that God had commanded. In other words, what happened in the book of Numbers is, is being presented to us here in Hebrews 3 as an example, an example of what unbelief really looks like. And so now, in verse 1, The author is going to apply that example to his audience, really to us. So so look down again. And when when you read chapter 3, verse 19, and you read it straight through to chapter 4, verse 1, you see the application, the example of them who failed in numbers being applied to us today. Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There's the argument, simply. To be sure, we'll spend the next couple of weeks unpacking this argument, working through it slowly and trying to see what it's saying to us. But this morning, we we just want to see what the argument is in verse 1. Well, the author tells us plainly that the promise of entering into God's rest, it still stands, This is the second thing we want to consider this morning. There's something very strange about that line, isn't there? There's something peculiar about what he's talking about because because that's something that took place way back then. That happened in the Exodus. It's an event that that happened millennia ago. How they had been brought up out of bondage from Egypt, a bondage marked by hardworking enslavement. And God had promised them a unique land filled with milk and honey, a land which they could find rest, a rest, a deliverance from that bondage and slavery. And the sad reality is that all those to whom the promise was given, well, they didn't enter that rest, precisely because they did not trust in God's promises to them. So we might be tempted to think that that all of that, that's just past history. That's Old Testament. We're New Testament. It's a bygone era. So why is it that this author drags this up again and says to us that so long as there is still a promise of rest, you need to make sure that you don't fall short of reaching it? Does God still have a literal piece of land reserved for Christians to live in? Sadly, many Americans have thought that the United States is that land. Americans are God's people. Let me just make it as clear as I can. That's wrong. Unbiblical, idolatrous, and nowhere ever stated to even being close in the Bible. The answer is no. Hebrews is not saying that God still has a literal land prepared for God's people. Christians today. We know that because the author of Hebrews has been quoting from Psalm 95 throughout Hebrews chapter 3. A psalm written by King David. David lived in that land. He was king over that land. So in other words, David was in the land, resting in the land, and yet still he wrote that God's people shouldn't harden their hearts because there's still a rest to come. What that means is this. The land, the land of rest, ultimately pointed back to Eden. You see, Eden was that perfect land, that perfect and sinless place of rest where we rested in God and with God. The place where even God on the seventh day, rested from all his works. We'll explore this more in the weeks to come, but essentially what's being argued here is that if the promised land of Canaan ultimately pointed back to the restful land of Eden, and if David, who was in and even king over Canaan, realized that there was still no real rest right here, well then, this is not Eden. That means there's still a more perfect rest to come. God's people are still awaiting the new and more perfect Eden. Oh, and guess what? Jesus, the new and better Adam, Jesus, who is our better and more faithful Moses, it's Him who's to take us into that land, into that new and restful Eden. Jesus says He is the way, the truth, and the life, does He not? It's Jesus who tells us in the Gospels, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, because in me, he says, you will find rest for your souls. So this is why the author of Hebrews has been telling us in chapter 3, and and look there again in verse 1, to consider Jesus the author and high priest of our confession. This is why he's told us in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, that if we have heard his voice, we're not to harden our hearts. This is why we're commanded as Christians in chapter 3, verse 12, to take care and watch out for any unbelief within your own hearts. Or again, verse 13, to exhort one another every day so that none of us might might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, Christian, that day of rest... We've got a ticket to enter into it, and make no mistake about it, Jesus, in Jesus, that ticket is our assurance that we will get in, but we're not there yet. In fact, our verse we're looking at in chapter 4, verse 1, tells us that while the promise of entering into his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We're still looking forward to the consummation of our full and eternal rest to come when we see Jesus face to face in that glorious and new and perfect Eden. There we'll find rest. But until then, here's what the author of Hebrews tells us. And this is, well, this is the third point of our passage. While we look forward to that time in hope and faith, And while we cling to Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of our faith, our confession, until that time, what is to characterize and mark every Christian? It's fear. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, Christians, fear. Well, well, isn't it really just those people who aren't living faithfully who are to fear? Right? Like, Like, it's the lukewarm Christians who who should be afraid. It's the ones who who don't really come to church every Sunday, who church hop, or or who are content to not be reading their Bibles throughout the week, or who aren't spending and dedicating their time to praying and communing with God. It's those Christians, right? If we can call them Christians, who should be fearful. Well, in one sense, yes, they should be afraid. And the author of Hebrews will go on to argue later that the people who live like that really ought not to have much assurance at all. But notice that that's not what the author is saying here. Now he says that while the promise still stands, let us fear. He includes himself. He's speaking here to every Christian. He, 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 he says to the person who just became a Christian last week, Fear. He's speaking to the Christian who's been a faithful believer for 50 or more years. You need to fear. And he's speaking to everyone in between. The faithful Christian life is a life marked by fear. Well, Pastor, I I did read your long email earlier this week. You made a pretty convincing case, though, that Christians are to be people who are not motivated and don't live a life out of fear. I mean, don't we read in 1 John that perfect love, knowing the perfect love of God, drives out all fear? Doesn't Jesus command us not to fear the future and to be anxious about what's to come? Yes, the Bible does say all that. And we have to be honest, there are tons more passages where the Bible tells us not to fear. Precious verses and precious promises that God is with us And he is for us. And so when the Bible is telling us not to fear, it's talking about a fear connected to our own anxiety over external circumstances in the world around us. Our anxiety over external circumstances in our own lives or, or in the political and cultural atmosphere of our own nation. And the Bible is saying, don't be more concerned and consumed with those things over and against the truth that God is the God of history, and in his sovereign working out of all things, he will bring history and every event and every person to their intended end to bring him glory. That's what's going on when the Bible says we ought not to fear. It's an ungodly fear and an anxiety that that things are out of our control and therefore must be out of God's control. God is way bigger we dare imagine and is in full control of every detail. Indeed, the Bible tells us that God is enthroned in heaven and does all that he pleases. But again, that's not how the book of Hebrews is using the word fear here. Fear, well, it is quite an unpopular word, isn't it? We don't like this command. Perhaps you're squirming right now. It's uncomfortable. And and if you're reading verse 1 in the NIV... Look what the NIV translates this as. He says, not let us fear, but let us be careful. Let's be clear. There's, there's a world of difference between being careful and fearing. Uh, when the walls have just been freshly painted, I'll tell people, I'll be a nice guy. Be careful. Right? I'm not going to say, fear! <laughs> no, the word in the Greek is phobeomai. Does that sound familiar to you? That's where we get our word phobia from. A constant, all-encompassing, completely consuming fear. So the author of Hebrews is not just calmly telling us, "Ah, Be careful. He's saying, look, you need to be marked by this, this phobeomai. You need to fear. But fear what? Well, look at how Hebrews uses this a bit later. Perhaps this is our clue. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 27, tells us that, well, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Or a bit later, Hebrews 10, verse 30 and 31. We see there the author tell us that we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Therefore, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or look again a little bit later in chapter 11, verses 6 through 7. Here, the author actually connects intimately faith and fear together. He says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it is that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Friends, when Hebrews commands us to fear, the the author is telling us to have a real fear of God an all-consuming, all-pervading awareness of who God is, what he'll do, What our relationship to God is. This is godly fear. And look, we need to be clear here the fear of God is it is one of those forgotten characteristics of what makes a believer. It used to be the central identifying mark of of what a Christian was in earlier generations. So when our spiritual forefathers would would describe someone who was characterized by genuine godliness, they would often call that person a, a God fearing man. And they got that language from the Bible. Albert Martin, an older Reformed Baptist minister in New Jersey, wrote this really incredible little book called The Forgotten Fear, Where Have All the God-Fearers Gone? And in the book, he, he writes that when you take away the soul from the body, all that you have left in a few days is a stinking carcass. Take away the fear of God from any profession of godliness, and all that is left is a stinking carcass of being a Pharisee, of barren religiosity or of calculated hypocrisy. And it's here in Hebrews 4.1 where our author tells us, he reminds us, that that earlier generation, they failed to reach and enter into the promised rest because they did not fear. They were marked by unbelief. See how chapter 3, verse 19, informs our understanding of fear in chapter 4, verse 1? The opposite of their unbelief It's to be in fear. And so fear and faithfulness really go hand in hand. What's the opposite of unbelief? A godly, faithful fear. But what have we done with fear today? Well, we've either forgotten it outright, or perhaps, and, and maybe this is even worse, we've tried to domesticate the word. We've replaced it with words and ideas like reverence. Yes, reverence is a part of godly fear, but it's certainly not the sum total of it. Keep your fingers here in Hebrews 4, and and turn back to what Paul says in Philippians 2. Turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, Paul is encouraging us to really do the same thing as what Hebrews is doing. Consider in faith the person of Jesus Christ. Because as we consider Jesus, we equip ourselves to persevere to the end. But notice what Paul says in chapter 2, Philippians 2, verse 12, and how this actually plays out in our life. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For Paul, godly fear is not just a nice, dignified reverence. Friends, it's, it's marked by trembling, knee-knocking, scared out of my mind. God is big. One more. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and look there at, at verse 17. 1 Peter 1, 17. Peter tells us that if you call on him as father, notice there the close filial relationship and love and hope, if you call on him as your father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see what Paul is doing here? He He's actually arguing exactly like the author of Hebrews is. Just like the generation of Israelites who were rescued out of Egypt and then wandered as exiles in the wilderness on the way to the promised land of rest, so too we Christians in exile here as we await our future rest in Christ. And while we're in exile, we are to conduct ourselves in godly fear. God sees us. He he knows us. And do I need to remind us that on the day of judgment, every one of our words and every thought and every single action and deed will be brought up before God? Friends, do you call God Father? Then fear Him, for you believe and you know that what awaits you is your coming into His presence. And that's the argument back in Hebrews 4 1, isn't it? What does He say is the reason for our needing to fear? He says, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You could actually translate that word seem as to be judged. Lest any of you should be judged to have failed to reach it. The danger being presented here is that if there is no fear, that's evidence that there may be no faith. And if there's no faith, then what you have is unbelief. And unbelief renders you unable and makes you incapable of reaching and entering into God's rest. I wonder if you're here this morning as someone who isn't a believer. You do not know God as Father because, well, you do not know Jesus as your Savior. And I surmise that this language of fearing God, it it, it strikes you as a bit odd. Perhaps you've never considered it or heard this before. Might it be that you yourself lack this very ingredient to saving faith? That you yourself have no fear of God? God's word actually already says this. Paul in Romans 3.18 tells us that there is no fear of God before the eyes of unbelievers. Have you ever asked why it is you live the way you do? Contrary to what God has commanded and desires of you? The biblical witness is that, well, it's that you lack the fear of God. You have no profound sense of the greatness of God, no pervasive sense of his presence, no constraining awareness of your obligations to him and his holiness. And that's why you so easily lie to others. That's why you so easily lust and give yourself to sensual indulgence. That's why you can't break sinful, habitual patterns which characterize your life. You do not fear God. If you're here this morning as someone completely devoid of godly fear, that means you're completely devoid of the Spirit of God. God has not changed your heart, and you are still in your unbelief and sins. And so I plead with you, if that's you this morning, oh, would you fly to God and pray to him? Pray to him now to have your heart changed. This isn't something you can do. God must change your heart. Ask him for that. Think about and take seriously the very real threat to your soul right now. You don't know the day or the hour or the second when judgment will be exacted upon you? Because of your sin and the sinfulness of your heart and your rebellion against God, eternal, unending judgment awaits? Friends, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Begin to take seriously the command of you in the gospel to repent And believe, for unless you do, God will glorify himself in judging you in your sin as he upholds his justice and holiness. Friends, Jesus calls to you even now using the words of Psalm 34. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Or perhaps we'd do better to read what Hebrews has been repeating for us throughout chapters 3 and 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. Friend, God is calling you to repent, find forgiveness in Christ, and to now begin that wonderful and and, and ironically comforting safe life marked by godly fear. Christian brother and sister, for us, the truth of the matter is that in Jesus, well, we will learn the fear of the Lord. It is the man or woman who has been made one with Jesus, who not only hopes and with confident assurance Looks forward to what is to come in our rest. But he's actually kept and actually preserved by God in that assurance through godly fear. And you know why that is, right? Because Jesus himself, while he lived and ministered among us, he himself lived in godly fear. Turn over just one page to Hebrews 5. Look at Hebrews 5 and look down at verse 5. <clears throat> That word translated reverence, I think is actually better translated as godly fear. Jesus himself lived as a man in godly fear. And and now instructs and works within us by his spirit that same godly fear. And friends, this is absolutely crucial to grasp. Listen to this. In Jesus Christ, all the benefits of our salvation are ours in him. In other words, whatever spiritual blessings we receive, whatever spiritual graces we get from God, we only receive them in the person of Jesus Christ, because it was first true of Jesus in his life and ministry. So in Jesus, we have his righteousness imputed to us, because it was Jesus who lived obediently on our behalf. By faith in Jesus, it is ultimately his faithfulness that is at work in us, for as Jesus he lived faithfully. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 3 tells us that by faith, he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so we see here that even our ability to fear God and to live faithfully in the fear of the Lord must be sought and found in Jesus as he lived in godly fear and reverence. This is why Hebrews 3 begins in verse 1 with that command to consider Jesus. Consider him who is faithful And the logic of this this whole section that we read at the beginning moves from our faithful considering of Jesus to now in Hebrews 4.1, our fearing of the Lord. And then finally, look there down at chapter 4, verse 11, where we're commanded to strive to enter into that final rest. Consider Jesus. And that considering works within us fear, which allows us to strive. Friends, that's the pattern of the Christian life. Consider fear and strive. Sadly, I think many of us are doing it backwards. We're doing a whole lot of striving, which actually makes us trust in ourselves more and, and diminishes and takes away any godly fear. And this inevitably takes us away from considering and knowing and wanting to believe more in Jesus. The only thing you're considering to do when when you start with striving, what else must I do? What other religious things can can I keep up to keep on striving? Friends, would you aim at being able to strive and enter into God's presence? Well, then according to Hebrews, first consider Jesus, and then out of that fear God. So I hope then that you see what's being persuaded to us here. Our salvation is entirely of faith alone. We want to confess, as the book of Hebrews confesses, that we are saved in Christ alone, by faith alone, and saved entirely by God's grace alone. Friends, in Jesus, we will go to heaven. We will find ultimate eschatological end-time rest in Jesus. That promise is a sure thing. But here's how God makes sure that that's going to happen. He works in us a godly fear. And those people whom he has saved, he works with us, a saving faith in which we're assured of our salvation. And you know what we're also assured of? That if we let go of Christ, if we, if we begin to look here or there or, or, or disbelieve, we stop fearing God. Well, then we can no longer know for sure that that promise of, a, of salvation is still ours. We've, we've forfeited entering into that rest. Friends, true Christians fear their own propensity to unbelief. We fear the very seeds of faithlessness within us. And guess what? We therefore fear God and we strive. We strive to enter into God's rest where one day we will strive no more. We will work no more. And there, brothers and sisters, we will rest for eternity more in the unending sunlight of the glory of Jesus Christ. Consider him. And while that promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should be judged to have failed to reach it. Let's pray.